It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Yo, man. Boom, Miss Rusty. It is Friday, 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 June 2nd, I believe. Uh, maybe June 3rd, probably June 3rd, June, nope, June 2nd, June 2nd today. So everyone, thank you for being here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN, sponsored by Stoner Eats Productions, Fred Ben Savage's Buck, Hypnosis is Great, Hardcore Entertainment, and SockEmUp.org. And you can check out other shows on this network, such as uh, when the gloves come off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling podcast. Uh, this is it with Lizzie and Saved by the Ben. And everyone, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. It's a great day today, and we have a special guest because I'm bringing special guests every day. I still am not sure about doing a show by myself. I like having a guest, so I'm going to bring on that special guest right here, right now, because it's Friday. And so I'm going to bring her on. And we have Brittany Storty. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's yeah, uh, whatever it means that one is Friday or whatever. I, I'm, I'm a Monday guy. I like Mondays and Sundays. Uh, but, you know, Friday, Friday is all right, too. Friday means that. I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, let's see. So. I, I see your your background here uh, is some is that a is that a real place is that uh, a place that you uh, frequent is that uh, or is that a uh, background of sorts or what what do we have here? I mean I might frequent it in my head but it's just a stock okay. photo because um, my business is the bridge coaching services so I want a stock photo uh, of a bridge i'm like get market okay. itself you know <laughs> yeah uh do you are, are you uh near any bridges or do you uh um somewhat i mean i live in rhode island so the biggest one here oh is that's the, right the newport and jamestown bridges okay um, uh, yeah. that's where i'm i'm headed in a few hours really <laughs> oh that's yeah. right because you're in connecticut right yep yeah uh, yeah and so uh yeah i mean there's so if you got bridges uh i don't know uh and then yeah there's a there's a lot of bridges and a lot of bridges mean different things so what what kind of does the the bridge represent for you then for your business um well i i got this idea because you know I, I was getting my certificate certification for coaching and the school I went to really encourages their students to start their own businesses. And naturally with a business, you have to be like, okay, well, what am I selling <laughs> really? And I know for me in my experience, when I got out of treatment, you know, you're, you're pretty vulnerable, you're raw, you know, logically what you have to do, but getting all that done to maintain your recovery is another story. So I was like, okay, well, what if there was a service to bridge the gap between getting out of treatment and recovery? Like, so I really wanted to highlight on the aftercare after treatment, you know? Uh, so what, uh, 
what kind of aftercare do you, I mean, cause it kind of seems to be something different for everyone for aftercare. And uh, there's not so much as a, a one, you know, one simple answer, Every, everyone fits that mold. Um, what, I, I guess, so what worked for you then, I guess is my first question to that one. In both my programs of recovery, they were 12 step based, but that doesn't work for everybody. And also I've learned with my own recovery that it's, it's pretty customized. Like I don't feel the need to go to a meeting every single day. I might go to one to two a week, depending on the week. Um, because I think we really need to highlight more like about our self care and that and what that means for us as individuals. And um, because like you said, it's not a one size fits all. And, right. you know, so for my program, it, I like to highlight like the elements of what people want for their lives, even if they can't see exactly like what they're doing, what they want to do as a career for the rest of their lives or because I think we have this um, idea in our society that we need to know exactly what we want all the time. <laughs> and we sometimes we don't. But I kind of take people a step back. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to feel at various points of your life? But what do you want to feel when you feel joy? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, so really just breaking it down and letting people know, like, it's, it's okay to take it slow. Yeah. And so then are you, uh, are, are you uh, suggesting 12-step programs for your clients or what, what's your stance on that for the most part? If, if you have a, a specific, or you know, not a specific, but a basic outline of what you do and things, points you want to hit, is that one of them that you hit along the way? I'd never bring it up. I only support it if they support it. And, okay. you know, it's kind of like the thing where I'll take their hand and guide them through if necessary, but I'm not a 12-step sponsor. I'm not a therapist. And I'm also a woman of faith too. So that would include celebrate recovery. Like there's so many different ways to do it now. It's not just one way anymore. And I'm just kind of there to give them support. And I think it's more empowering that way as well. Yeah. So what do you mean celebrate recovery? Uh, cele celebrate recovery. It's it's like AA, um, but it's more Christ centered. Uh -huh. um, whereas AA um, is more higher power centered. So. So what, what, what do you see as the difference in that, those two um, as opposed to higher power centered and opposed to Christ centered? Or do you see them sort of as one and the same and interchangeable? I think for everyone it's different and it depends on what people find comfortable, really. Um, some people can't picture a higher power at that point, but the program also encourages you to, you can make the group your higher power. It just means something greater than yourself. Whereas, um, you know, with Celebrate Recovery, it's Christ-centered, and some people feel the need to deepen their faith along with their recovery. So it's really just 
kind of find out what you need. That's all. Yeah. And yeah, it can be a little something different yeah. for everyone. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so then where, I mean, where did you kind of end up, I guess, um, when you were finding yourself, I guess, into, is this, I don't know if it's something you want to talk about or not. Sure. Um, so like when you found yourself into recovery or, you know, dipping your toe into recovery or was there a time you dipped in and you dipped out and, uh, or were, once you were in, you were in? Um, for, I'm in recovery for food addiction and uh, substance use. And for food, it's a little hazy, you know, it's, it's not as clear, like you can't stop eating. Um, right. you know, so that took a little bit longer and there was a lot of toe dipping and figuring out what worked for me, whereas giving up alcohol and drugs, it was, I just dove right in. Um, because for me that took it off the table, it was no longer an option. Yeah. And I, I don't believe in trying things. I believe in doing my best in something and figuring it out. So then were you sort of at a, I mean, were you at a point? Uh, where you made the decision to go into treatment or did somebody, was there some external force, uh, whether it be some person you are in some sort of relationship with um, either, you know, platonically or romantically or something of the law, or was it something that you chose on your own when you ended up at a place where you needed a change? So <laughs> this, this could be a long answer. Um, That's okay. It's a podcast. So, right. So when I was 19, I had come home from college and I would watch the Dr. Oz show while I ate lunch just to kind of keep my mind busy because I was suffering from anorexia at that point. And I wanted to see something that he said on the show. So I went to his website and in the corner, it asked people to share their experience in their eating disorder and not thinking anything of it. Here I am 19 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. I started typing in and two days later, I was called by a producer to be on the show. <laughs> and so it's, it's interesting because these experiences have kind of presented themselves to me. I was never like thrown into treatment or, or court ordered or anything like that. Um, but I went on the show and I didn't even know that they were going to offer treatment until the end. So it was a surprise for all of us. Wow. And um, it took me a couple weeks to make the decision, but I chose to go. And that's, I didn't stay sober or clean or whatever in my addictions, but I, I think that planted the seeds and I knew where to go after that. And I was also right. 19 and I thought I knew everything. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 19, you don't know too much. You, you're an um, adult, but you don't, you don't know a lot. Uh, yeah. And then I found alcohol when I was 21 and I was never a real drinker before then. I, I think cause I was more worried about the calories and stuff like that, but it's like that hit the green light to just go for alcohol and then so that, with alcohol. That, that vodka yeah. or something uh then if it's oh, it was anything or anything. so but it wasn't beer though no not really i'm i'm also um 
gluten intolerant too. <laughs> so that kind of kept me away from the beer. But um, also I was drinking for an, an effect. I wasn't drinking to be social. So I went for the hard stuff right away. Right. And with that, I, I use drugs to allow myself to drink more and longer. Right. Um, so they kind of went hand in hand for me. The uppers and, of sorts. Yeah. And okay. um, that lasted until I was two weeks shy of 24 and I just woke up one day and and it, during that time I, I had become homeless for a period of time I had lost my sister to suicide a lot of things went down and I just got to a point where I'm like why am I defending something that does absolutely nothing for me it only takes things away and I woke up one day and I had this thirst for something that wasn't alcohol. It was for community. It was for something spiritual. And I drove to an AA meeting. And um, I remember telling my fiance, and he's like, are you okay? Like everyone freaked out because <laughs> I was going to AA. And, um, and then afterwards he's like, oh yeah, she's just, you know, learning how to drink less or whatever. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what it is. <laughs> I'm not going to AA to manage my alcohol. I'm going to give it up. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's and, usually not much and of once a... I gave it. Yeah, and once I gave it up, that was that was it. You know, I I never, thank God, went back to it. But I saw so you were 23, <laughs> 23 was, and stopped. 20... Yeah, I was almost 24, two weeks shy of 24. Wow. Yeah, wow. which was so hard you... because when I turned 24, everyone wanted to go out drinking. <laughs> Right. And yeah, I mean, by that time, yeah, everyone loves going to the bars. And mm -hmm. uh, and then so what, what did you do? Were you just not hanging out with them and going to meetings instead? Or what was your sort of way of doing that? Were you going there with them and uh, having a, a soda or something or, or you know? Um, I don't think I went out, out like to a club or anything for the first six months. Um, and I just remember feeling very raw and I just went to, I went to at least five meetings a week just because well, it was a place to go. And I didn't know what else to do, especially because no one's getting sober at 24 years old, you know what I mean? And, and it's spending a dollar, uh, to throw into the collection plate at an right. AA meeting is, and, and free coffee and yeah. something is a lot cheaper than going out to the bar anyway. Yeah, I can't even tell you how many times I drunkenly paid for someone else's bill. <laughs> oh, <shoot. laughs> Drunk me is very generous, apparently. <laughs> sure. So That's yeah, not that a bad dollar deal. was a lot cheaper. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, put it in there and then uh, yeah. or and it worked. And so, um, so are you when you're going back to meetings? Are you? I mean, you say you're still going at least once a week you said that you said so are you doing like speaker meetings or anything or are you doing uh um where, where you or are you telling okay. your your story during uh during uh, meetings or i usually always share in the meetings i attend um I don't even know why it's not even something I feel like I have to check off. It just, it comes to me and I feel the need to share. And I do enjoy speaker meetings, but I also enjoy 
step studies or literature meetings. I'm a big book nerd. Um, and, you know, if I can't get to a meeting or whatever, I still call my sponsor every day. Um, oh, okay. Mainly because I love her. I love her to death. So. Yeah. And so, uh, and you said you're not sponsoring anybody, but you're, you're a coach still. Is that what was I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. Right now I'm just coaching um, because for me, I wanted to give myself a break to really, you know, define the lines between the two, between sponsoring and coaching people, because there is a difference. What is the difference? Um, with sponsoring, you're basically guiding someone through the steps and you're telling them what you did or what helped you based on your experience. With coaching, it's more like empowering your clients to find the answers themselves because okay. we're a lot smarter than we realize. And a lot of us actually know exactly what we want in life. We just need help getting there. So you're not telling your stories during the coaching to your clients? Not unless I'm asked a direct question about it. Um, because okay. a lot of times, especially in early recovery, we're so, um, we're easily imprinted on. And I don't want to say my experience and have someone think, oh, that's what I need to do. You know, sure. um, because what worked for me might not work, work for them. And I, I want to allow them to navigate life on life's terms with guidance instead of influence. So, okay, let, let me give you a hypothetical here. So if you were at a party back before you got sober and there's the party has a lot of people, there's multiple rooms of whatever going on and you find yourself smack in the middle of the party, where are you? What are you doing? Ooh, I, <laughs> I didn't go to a lot of parties. Um, mainly because I, I drank too much and I was a liability. Um, I didn't involve a lot of people around my drinking because I, I didn't want to drag them down with me. But I probably, within an hour maybe, passed out completely because um, I would be drinking before I would get there. I was drinking all the time. And it was just, it was not, not a good scene. I wasn't a good drunk. I was a messy drunk, a very messy drunk. So were you at home then and just sort of isolating yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mainly drank alone. Um, and if I was going to someone's house, I would actually bring my own bottle to make sure I had alcohol with me. Right. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of friends and especially like during when I first started drinking people were still away at college um so there wasn't really anyone around and I just got into a lot of unhealthy relationships and situations so did you drop out of college then at that time yeah I I dropped out before I went on the Dr. Oz show um just because I I mentally couldn't do it anymore I was I was 92 pounds I, I there was no brain fun functioning going on really and my body was shutting down so that's, that's why I dropped out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, okay. So you go on the Dr. Oz show. What's, what's that like? <laughs> uh, 
um, I was kind of numb because I was in, in denial that I still had everything un under control. And I can remember even what NBC studios looked like completely. My dressing room was across from Paul Rudd because he was going on the Tonight Show that day. <laughs> and oh. um, I was on the show with three other women, um, one of which I'm still very good friends with today. They're one of my best oh. friends. Um, the other two have passed away as a result of this disease. Oh, yeah. Were you staying in touch with them until then? Or um, you just hear it through the grapevine? I, I couldn't, I didn't with one of them. Um, just because I didn't know how to reach her. Because like, you know, most of, most treatment centers are pretty anonymous unless you exchange information. It's kind of hard to find people on the outside sometimes. Right. Um, but I did keep in touch with one of them as long as I could um, before she passed away. Oh, and how'd you, how'd you find that out that she did? Um, when her niece shared her obituary on Facebook, but and, I kind of knew it was coming. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to find out. I mean, there's been a lot of people that I've known and that's how I found out that they've died is on Facebook all of a sudden uh, everyone seems to be posting uh, you know RIP so and so or um, you know whatever but then you know sometimes when it's someone where it's you don't know any of their friends or you're the only person of contact of of them and then you just don't really know and I mean I assume it's a, a little bit better way to find out than you know finding out years later but still I mean it's uh it's an interesting interesting way to understand that uh so, I mean it's a lot to take in to just go in and doing something that uh because there's so much serotonin and dopamine going through your body while you're scrolling through all this crap uh whatever social media stuff and all of a sudden you're hit with oh okay that's that's going to yeah change my mood and so what happens then after that once you realize are you going on to that page and looking for details, trying to figure out what what's going on, or are you closed down and get off of there and do something different, or what's what's happening in that situation? So, death for me is a little different than most people. Um, I grew up in a funeral home, <laughs> so oh. I'm I'm kind of desensitized to a certain extent. Um, so I don't really like to pry with the family, um, especially with my own loss of my sister. You know, I really, I try to res respect people's privacy because everything comes out eventually. There's, they're gone. What's, what's the rush in finding out what happened? Right. You know, it'll come out. Right. So you grew up in, in a funeral home. Uh, so it's just like, like my girl kind of yeah, a, a thing. Much. You were like the, the Veda. Uh, yeah, yeah, because we literally lived upstairs till I was five. So. 
okay so you'd come you coming downstairs and you'd be it'd be okay like the yeah. movie and yeah. uh i remember so, playing barbies on the kneeler in front of the casket when my dad would do makeup on on the people <laughs> so what was that like then being a, a kid around that well we didn't have sleepovers um <laughs> But, you know, who's really sleeping over at five years old anyway? Um, um, I don't know. I guess I just was desensitized. I'd seen hundreds, thousands of people. And I think for me, what I took away from it wasn't like, you know, the fact that there's a dead person in the living room. <laughs> you know, I didn't take that. What I took away was I saw how people were remembered. So I often thought about my own mortality and how are people going to remember me? Um, and I really think a lot of that would fueled my perfectionism and um, kind of pushed me a little bit more towards my eating disorder than I think a lot of things would have. Being remembered as uh, some sort of what you and your head think is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep because you saw other people that were maybe not, you know, have the perfect, the perfect death, I guess, is, is a, is a weird way to put it. The perfect death, the perfect legacy. Mm -hmm. And you were, I mean, so you, this was the only one you were a little kid, correct? Yeah. That you had. And so, I mean, what, was there anyone there that you ever knew I mean, was it was it a big enough town where you didn't know anybody that was coming through there? Um, I really didn't know anyone because it's it's a small town. Um, it's South Kingstown, so I think there's like twenty seven thousand people, something like that. Um, but everyone kind of knew me in a way. And personally, I didn't lose anyone until my great grandmother when I was I think, nine or ten years old. Um, but I just, I didn't really even think about the fact, like, you know, there's a dead person downstairs or anything like that. I more just saw people grieving. So I saw a lot of darkness, a lot of grief early. And some people don't even go to funeral funerals until they're like in their teenage years. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's a lot to take in when you're when you're a kid and seeing a lot of that. I think when being when I was between eight and nine, I had uh, I had three grandparents and then one, and one grand great grandparent die. And so, I mean, I like I don't know. I saw a lot of funerals when I was a kid, and so it's something that's. I don't know. I don't know if it, yeah, sort of like desensitized me into that as well. But yeah, and then you hear people that you know, yeah, never been in the funeral until their teens or twenties, and um, it's odd. And so, what? Where did you? I mean, was your dad still working in the funeral business after you moved, or did he? Yeah, he's the get, owner. He's the owner, but you moved out of the house. Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you go help him at all after that? Were you going, would you go over there and did you help do makeup or help prepare the room or anything of that sort? Or were no, you I, didn't on your own? Have, I didn't have any desire to be there because as, as a kid, you know, all I knew is my dad was gone all the time. 
And so I kind of resented the business a little bit, like that it took my dad away or, or whatever. So I didn't want anything to do with it. And then I uh, started to work for him at, I think, 27, something like that. <laughs> What'd you do? I went to school for funeral directing and I, I did everything. So. Oh, so how long did he do that for and what got you away from that? I did that for mm, from 2019 until this past January. Um, and it was, I was lured in with financial stability, <laughs> really. Um, sure. Because I was a hairdresser beforehand. And, you know, if you're not all in with that, you know, it's not the most staple job, you know, unless right. you make your career, really. And um, so I got nervous and decided to give funeral directing a shot. And I was really good at it because it was normal to me. I was raised in it. In your but, blood. Yeah. And my brother was also licensed. So um, he worked there too. Oh. And, uh, but I just, I didn't like the fact that I saw these grieving families. And then after services are over, they're left with that. They're left in that grief, and I can't reach out to them at all. So I didn't like feeling like I couldn't help them. And that's really why I wanted to pursue coaching is to help people through the transitional and transformational times in their lives. Why couldn't you reach out to them? Is there some sort of, uh, is it, is it taboo to do that afterwards or sort of uh, an unwritten rule of funeral directing to not reach out afterwards it's more like your role is done and for them to continue in their grief journey they need to seek professional help um as far as like therapy and things like of that nature so i guess i wasn't qualified really to reach out to them did you have reference or not references uh referrals of of people who did that for some of the people um they were, seemed like they're having a harder time with what was going on. Were you, you know, like, hey, go go speak with uh, John or Susie. They're both great. They both help with this kind of thing. And uh, I can't do it, but this would be helpful. Or is that, or is that kind of an insulting thing to say? Or I don't know. Um, we, did, we did receive a few emails like requesting aftercare and I kind of was the only one that knew where to send them because I've been in therapy myself since I was 16 years old. And um, so I gave them the referrals, but we're not required to do that really. Some funeral homes do offer that, um, but it wasn't, the aftercare wasn't really, I want to say priority, but not to say like there's no care, like we didn't care about it or anything. It just wasn't in the forefront of our minds. Like we had a job to do, we had a job to carry out and that was our role. And then, so then also then you're working on a, I mean, the schedule's gotta be crazy because you're basically on call 24 seven and uh, you know, you can't be, you know, can't say hold on a little bit, um, you know, when, when someone dies, I mean, you got, you got to, you have to be there. So, I mean, that's, that has to be a whole different kind of stress too, having to 
be on that not knowing, you know, not a, I mean, not being on a normal sleep schedule and changing that up all the time is going to do wonder, not wonders, but, uh, I mean, just do crazy stuff to your whole existence and not knowing what's up, what's down, anything. And just, and then still having to, at that time, be there for the families coming in because you're the one guiding them. You're the tour guide of tour guide of death. And I, I don't know if that, that, that doesn't quite sound right, but um, in a way that's, that's what, what you end up being. I, I went and applied uh, to do that at, at a, at a funeral home and um yeah, it was, I don't know. I mean, I got the job, but I ended up turning it down. And um, I don't know. I don't know if I, I could have. Because, I mean, yeah. So if, you, as if it's like a funeral home, you're doing a lot more than if it's, a, if it's a big place and you're just sort of the person at the first, you know, the the forefront, like a, you're not doing like if you have a funeral home, you're kind of doing everything as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a large court, not cor as a corporate, corporate place or like. Uh, yeah, a, um, I mean, there's not too much of a difference between the both corporate and family owned or private privately owned. It's just basically ownership um, okay. because the funeral director's role is you know, taking that first call, doing the embalming, um, you know, like just seeing it all the way through. Some funeral homes do like to assign different roles, like you're strictly an embalmer, you're strictly the front of the house. Some some funeral homes do that, but that wasn't us. We did everything. Or they, yeah. Yeah, they do everything. Everyone's still there. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, it is hard, you know, when, when you're on call, you can't really do anything and then if you get a call and the family is like we're not ready just yet so then you're like okay they're gonna call me in a couple hours it's you know two o'clock in the morning that means they'll probably call me at 4 a.m which means i'm not gonna sleep and um you know i'm not gonna say there's anything wrong with that because it's such a sensitive part of someone's life right but it is not easy on the other end either and i think you know emotions are high and People show themselves in, I would say, in weddings and funerals. <laughs> you know, they always yeah. they just come into their true self sometimes. So um, you you have the people, whatever the equivalent of the, I mean, what, what would you call it? Like, there's the term bridezilla. Uh, yeah. So whatever. So there's there's people like that that come in that are just heated and all, all kinds of you know just nothing you can do is right and. I mean, having to be able to then as well, keep your composure for that because you can't, you can't lay back into someone who's and just start throwing it back at them. You know, you have to be there and it's, that's gotta be, that's gotta be tough. I mean, to just be able to do that. So that's a strong person who can be able to handle that. Um, yeah. I that think coming at I, you. Yeah. I mean, Thankfully, I got a lot of families that were very kind, but I'm, I also make it a point to let people know 
I hear them because I think at the end of the day, that's all we want. And right. there are, there are a, a lot of moving parts in that industry. Like the funeral director is literally just a director. They are at the mercy of, you know, the state or, you know, distributors or, you know, they, they just kind of put everything together. But as long as I was transparent with uh, my families about the process, they were a lot more understanding instead of me just giving them, them lip service and just telling them, oh, it's all going to be fine. It's No, they want to know what's going on. Um, right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. And I think they'll appreciate that, you know, the honesty of it and, you know, being upfront and not having to wonder if they're, you know, their, their person is going to be well cared for and they are going to be well cared for as well. And so have you, how has that helped transition and uh, helped you with your coaching business? How has that, what parts of that have you taken from that into coaching? I think... I have the opportunity now to help save lives instead of dealing with the aftermath. Um, Cause we saw a lot of overdoses or a lot of illnesses due to eating disorders or substance use, alcohol, whatever. And now I'm on the other side. So I think in this line of work, I have a lot more hope for people because it's not a definite outcome. It's, it's their choice. 100%, but at least they have a shot. And um, I think also realizing how special life is and how we're all here to fulfill a certain purpose, I listen to people a lot differently than others would. Um, and it all really starts with their mindset. And using positive language versus, you know, that internal monologue of gaslighting themselves. Right, which is, uh, you know, very common in, in addictive minds um, that, that, that gaslighting yourself, not even someone else gaslighting you. I mean, it's, and that can be a hard one to one grasp and two, accept and learn how to work with that and learn learn that you're doing that like a lot you know a lot of people don't even know they're doing that and yeah just being able to recognize that and learn how to work best with that because it'll probably still happen time to time but just being able to have the tools which i assume you're giving them to be able to work with that and make everything an easier transition into getting into where they're on on the road to recovery in, in a sense and having that next shot and i mean just being away from a lot of that stuff i mean like uh, yeah i mean it's it's a much different life like being being away from alcohol is i mean some people sure is great, but I mean, I'm almost at, almost at nine years and uh, I, I don't, I haven't missed it once. There's, I mean, I, I stopped like 
at the same time, stop, stop smoking cigarettes, uh, you know, same time. And um, I mean, I, I so, so sometimes I, I have like, I don't know, if I see one in an ashtray that's like half full, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that might be all right. Or if there's one that's stepped on, that's like half smoked, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can go smoke that. But like, I never feel like I want to buy a pack or, you know, bum one off of somebody. But alcohol is just, I haven't had any, any desire. And uh, I mean, yeah, and I, I've been around, you know, some of the kind of like the, the, drinking to pass out and mm-hmm. watching that and you know being in being in a relationship with you know someone like that and um and then being in comedy and being around comedians getting wasted all the, every night and going back and doing it again i mean it gets it gets old and kind of depressing and just like being able to be away from it and, you know, having some, there's other ways to live other than you don't have to, don't have to go out and drink. Uh, and so it's, it's nice and nice having options of different ways to help yourself get better. And, um, and then you watch a lot of the relationships around you improve and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of other people start, you know, without even saying anything, watching other people sort of kind of see like, oh, okay, well, I never would have thought that uh, the old Rusty's fuck not drinking, you know, maybe, maybe I can give that a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then if people are wanting to find you to have your coaching and guidance, uh, where are they going to do that? Um, they can call or text me on my business line. It's 508-492-5298. You know, because some people don't want to do the whole formal email thing. And you know, I fully support that. I fully support any contact versus no contact. Um, I do also have an email. It's BrittanyStorty at thebridgecoachingservices.net. Excellent. Is is that a Google voice number? Yes, it is. (laughs) I'm I'm all for that. Uh, Because I mean, it goes goes to your phone. it's a ghost to your phone without, you know, having to disclose your, your personal number. So it's like, they're getting the same, same exact service as, you know, them just calling you up on your phone. Um, yeah, I'm all for it. I I use it for my business and it's, it's perfect. So yeah. Uh, maybe Google voice might be a sponsor here sometime, uh, down the road, but yeah. So, um, yeah, Brittany, I, I enjoyed getting to talk with you and uh, getting to learn and not knowing where we were going to go and where we got to. I'm happy we got to where we got to. And I hope that a lot of people uh, hearing this will be able to reach out to you and, you know, get get to, you know, when they want to get to that place where they can have a little guidance. And, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with with uh having someone else on, on your side kind of uh showing you giving you tools mm-hmm. of what what can make your life better and yeah so um yeah everyone yeah contact Brittany and uh yeah Brittany thank you so much and have a great rest of your day maybe I'll see you here I'll drive by you or something in a few hours uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah um all right well hey uh, take care and we'll right. we'll talk soon okay
Thank you. Thank you for having yep. me. You're welcome. All right, that's Brittany Storty. So you guys, um, thank you for listening here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN, sponsored by uh, Stone and Reeds Productions, Fred Ben Savage as fuck, Hypnosis is great, Hardcore Entertainment, and SockEmUp.org, and check out the other shows on this network, uh, When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is it with Lizzie and Say by the Ben. And thank you so much for being here, everyone. I really appreciate it. Like, share this with a friend, share it around, share it around your social media. Tag me in it. You can tag me, find Rusty Diamond uh, CH or, you know, tag the show. I don't know, but I'll, I'll uh, repost, re, I don't know, re, not retweet. I'll read something you're you're posting so thank you everyone for listening and that is the show man boom boom It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Ernest! 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 <coughs> yes, Pee-wee. You brought the snacks, right?